On June 4, 1899, a ship pulls up to the village of Metlakatla in southern Alaska. On board are 126 people, including Edward Harriman, a tycoon from New York with a walrus mustache, several railroads, and about $5 billion. All he had wanted to do was shoot bears in Alaska, a big game vacation. But he didn't want to go alone, so he bought the old steamship, outfitted it with a library and a lecture room and a stable for animals and a taxidermy studio and luxury staterooms, and brought all these other people, including the naturalist John Muir and George Bird Grinnell, and ornithologists and botanists and zoologists and geologists, geographers and artists. A two-month scientific expedition, which in 1899 looks a lot like a big-game vacation. One of the artists on board is Edward Sheriff Curtis, photographer, 31 years old, the youngest member of the team. Born in Wisconsin, raised in Minnesota, living in Seattle when he was invited to join the trip, his first real expedition. Maybe you know Edward Curtis, or maybe you don't think you know Edward Curtis, but you do. Even if you've never seen one of his photographs, Because shortly after this Alaskan expedition, Curtis would spend the next three decades photographing Native American people, some 40,000 photographs compiled in 22 books. And now, in bookshops and souvenir shops and antique shops and museum shops, you can find his prints and books. And on coffee mugs, t-shirts, even shower curtains. You can Google Photograph of Native American right now. And mostly what you'll see is his work or his imitators. Black and white images of native people in buckskin or blankets or no shirts at all out in nature. Because what Curtis created in all those thousands of photos is the de facto image, as the native photographer Cara Romero put it recently, of, quote, what real Indians look like to the non-native world. Curtis will spend half his life photographing what he calls the vanishing race, as though Native people will soon be gone. But in June 1899, when he gets off the boat in Metlakatla, he enters a town of about a thousand Shimshan people, with its white wooden church and theater and bandstand and elevated streets of wooden planks. And there he almost certainly encounters another photographer, Benjamin Alfred Haldane, better known as B.A., 25 years old of the Shimshian Nation, who sets up his studio in Metlakatla that same year. He, too, will spend his life photographing Native people. Weddings, concerts, sporting events, family portraits, sometimes in traditional clothes, sometimes in suits and dresses, sometimes with tubas and trombones. Native people living their lives, just like him. None of them vanishing. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Now showing, in our hands, Native photography, 1890 to now. 
an exhibition of photographs of, by, and for Indigenous people. The object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture and the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of two people seeing the same thing at the same time, with very different lenses. A story of resilience and resistance, beauty and the beholder. You may never see that Edward Curtis book on your coffee table the same way again, and that's okay. I'm Tim Gearing. To understand how Metlakatla, Alaska, came to be, we have to go back to England in the 1830s, where this guy named William Duncan is born to an unmarried teenage servant in Yorkshire. Duncan grows up to work as a bookkeeper and a tanner until he joins a missionary service and is sent to the northwest coast of Canada, near Alaska. It doesn't go well for him at first, He learns the Shimshan language and gets a few converts. But when he rings the church bells on the day the daughter of the village head is initiated into a secret society, the man threatens him at gunpoint. Duncan decides to lead a few dozen converts away from the village to form their own community called Matlakatla, meaning the saltwater channel where the wind dies down. And when a smallpox epidemic seems to pass them by, many more people come his way. He comes up with a list of rules. Number one, they must give up their, quote, Indian devilry. Number two, no more calling in conjurers when sick. Number three, no more potlatch, the coastal custom of a gift-giving feast and several more about being peaceful and industrious and cleanly and other bullshit. Oh, and no communion, eating the symbolic flesh of Christ, right? Apparently because Duncan is worried this would activate some cannibalistic instinct. Well, the Church of England isn't fond of that, or the near total control Duncan is exerting over his followers. So when the Church expels him, In 1881, he goes to the U.S. Congress in Washington and asks permission to move his community to Alaska. And in 1887, he does, leading about 800 Shimshian converts across the channel in canoes to Annette Island to start the new village of Metlakatla, Alaska, including the 13-year-old B.A. Haldane. Mike Waldangeli, a professor of art history from the Shimshian Nation, grew up in Metlakala and has spent years researching her community's history and Haldane's place in it. As far as she can tell, Haldane is cut off from formal schooling after completing the third grade reading material, with Duncan telling him, there's nothing more for you to learn. So, by age 16, he's working in the local salmon cannery using some of the money he's making to buy books and, eventually, a camera. 
Now, by the 1890s, photography is just starting to become more widely available, right? The first Kodak camera came out in 1888. 25 bucks for a camera loaded with a roll of film and a leather carrying case. But still, 25 bucks then is several hundred dollars today. And Holding wants a better camera than that. Plus, there's the whole remote island in Alaska thing. But Haldane is a smart guy, with seemingly endless energy. As D'Angeli notes, he's not only an excellent photographer, he teaches music, leads the village band and choir, and plays the organ in church. Eventually, he's on the village council, too. There's a photo from the early days of Metlakatla of an enormous tree trunk cut off about 25 feet from the ground with the bandstand perched on top like a treehouse stuck with half a dozen U.S. flags trimmed with what looks like eagle feathers, a long rickety staircase leading up to it, and the band inside, 12 guys with horns and drums, so high up that people have to strain to see them almost as tall as the church. And right in the middle, it seems, is Haldane. Meanwhile, back in Minnesota, Curtis finishes school after the sixth grade and apprentices with a photographer in St. Paul. When his family moves to Seattle, he works in a lumber yard until he's injured and decides to get into photography. In 1895, Curtis takes his first pictures of Native people, the Duwamish community living around Puget Sound. He pays the eldest daughter of Chief Saul, or Seattle, for whom the city was named, a dollar a photo. This seemed to please her greatly, he notes. Two years later, he's shooting on Mount Rainier when a group of prominent scientists wander by, apparently lost including George Grinnell, the naturalist. Curtis helps, and soon enough, he's on that boat to Alaska. When the group gets the Metlakatla, some of them meet with Duncan in his house, and they hear his story of how, in his view, he saved these Shimshan people. A most degraded set, one of the scientists later writes, cannibals, improvident, inhabiting hovels and altogether beasts. He taught them gradually a certain self-respect. Well, Curtis and Grinnell and Muir, it seems, don't exactly share these views. Indeed, they see the native men in western suits and the women in dresses and the enormous church Duncan had them build and the salmon cannery with its native and Chinese labors and they become alarmed. The old ways, they think so colorful and exotic to them, seem to be disappearing. At the end of the trip, about seven weeks later, Harriman is ready to go home. He's visited Russia. He's named a fjord after himself. He shot a bear on Kodiak Island. Two, actually. A mother and cub. Much to John Muir's consternation. But on the way back, on the 26th of July... They make one last stop at a Clinkett village they call Cape Fox, which to them appears abandoned. 
Harrymen and some others dismantle houses, collecting masks and statues and totem poles. And when they get back home, the objects go to the Field Museum in Chicago and Cornell University and other institutions. What Curtis thinks of this, I don't know. Though he takes a picture of everyone assembled on the beach in front of the village, like one last vacation photo. No doubt the place seemed abandoned to him, too. Another sign of a disappearing people. But it's not abandoned. And the Clinket haven't disappeared. In fact, they're living nearby. And the site, to them, is sacred. If only anyone had asked. There's a long history of white explorers not asking directions, right? Or any other questions. In Minnesota, there's the long search for the start of the Mississippi River, right? For a hundred years or more, explorers canoe around the woods looking for the source. They draw maps, they write books claiming to have found it, but none of them are right. Until finally someone decides to ask the local Ojibwe people, who say, yeah, it's right over there. In the Arctic, Europeans die searching for the North Pole or a Northwest Passage across the top of the world because they can't find food or shelter, even though Native people have been living there for thousands of years. Maybe you've heard some of these stories. Like John Franklin and his crew of 129 from England. They spend more than a year with their ships stuck in ice until two dozen of them, including Franklin, die. And then the rest of them take off across the tundra. When searchers eventually come, years later, from England, the Inuit are like, yeah, we saw them. Here's some of their stuff. The Englishmen, apparently, had walked right past, never asking for help, suffering to the point of cannibalism, until every last one of them disappeared on the ice. Within a year after the Harriman expedition returns to Seattle in 1899, Curtis rides the Great Northern Railroad out to Browning, Montana, and hooks up with Grinnell again, this time to document the Plains tribes, including the Sundance. Probably the last great one, he thinks. It was the start of my concerted effort to learn about the Plains Indians and to photograph their lives, Curtis would write and I was intensely affected. Grinnell tells him, Look, if you're going to do this thing, photographing the tribes of Native America, and I wholeheartedly support this, you have to get your information directly from the Indians themselves. But once Curtis gets this idea that the cultures are vanishing, he can't seem to change course. Even the Sundance, which had in fact been banned in the U.S. since the 1880s. Well, here it is, nearly 20 years later, right? Being performed in Montana by a gathering of hundreds and documented by white people. In fact, what Curtis photographs that summer in Montana is not the end of anything, but extraordinary evidence to the contrary. Let's go back to Alaska in 1899, when the Harriman Expedition visits Metlakatla. 
That same year, B.A. Haldane takes a photograph that Michael D'Angeli calls a counter-narrative. It's a picture of himself, sitting in a studio in a chair with a suit and bow tie. As D'Angeli points out, all around him he's assembled, proudly and in some cases subversively, symbols of his life and heritage. His large view camera with its black hood, a megaphone for band practice, and right next to him, a model of a totem pole bearing his clan crest. His arm is resting right on it. Physically and metaphorically, D'Angeli writes, he is supported by Shimshan cultural values and beliefs. A couple years later, Haldane photographs the wedding in Matlakala of a man named Edward Marsden, who in fact had become the first Native American to earn a license to preach. He and his bride invite people to wear ceremonial regalia to the reception. Bands be damned. And Haldane is there to record it. Many times Haldane does this. Sometimes openly, sometimes outside of town in some discreet location. Photographing the ongoing practice of traditional culture. Kids with dance paddles or robes. A chief with eagle down on the floor around him. Some of these people, like Haldane, are on the council of the village, a place supposedly stripped of its traditional native culture. And yet, here it is, enacted defiantly by some of the most prominent people in town, literally in black and white. Well, by 1904, the narrative for Curtis has all but solidified, right? He vows to create, quote, a permanent record of all the important tribes of the U.S. that still retain to a considerable degree their primitive traditions and customs. Though, of course, that wouldn't include, in his mind, a place like Matlakatla. All he needs now are some backers. And in 1904, he lands about the biggest one you could, the president, Theodore Roosevelt who was very much interested in the vanishing race. The sooner the better. The man who said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. Yeah, that guy. Curtis won an award for some of his early Native American photos, and Roosevelt noticed... So, in 1904, Curtis goes to Washington to meet him. They become good friends, actually. Curtis shoots the wedding of Roosevelt's daughter and some portraits of the family at the Summer White House on Long Island. Eventually, the president writes a letter of introduction to someone who can actually pay for all this, J.P. Morgan. Unlike Roosevelt, Morgan doesn't seem to have much interest in the West, like, at all. He rides the transcontinental railroad out to California with his wife once, when the golden spike is pounded in, in 1869. And then you don't really hear about him getting out of the office in New York. He can't even manage to get on the Titanic, which he owns, in time for its inaugural voyage. J.P. Morgan's primary interest is J.P. Morgan. So, in January 1906, 
Curtis meets him in his huge wood-paneled office on Wall Street. He gets out his portfolio of pictures and makes his pitch. And Morgan turns him down without even looking at the photos. Just not interested. But Curtis doesn't leave. At least look at the photos, he says. So Morgan does. And for some reason, he changes his mind, according to his secretary, for just the second time in 25 years. He offers to write Curtis a check for $75,000, almost $3 million today, as long as Curtis meets his demands. 1,500 photographs of Native Americans in 20 leather-bound volumes priced at $3,000 a set. Curtis says, Okay. That summer of 1906, while taking some of his most familiar photographs of the Hopi people in the Southwest, Curtis writes to Roosevelt, Will the president write the foreword to the book series? Of course he will. Quote, In Mr. Curtis, the president writes that fall, We have both an artist and a trained observer, whose work is far more than mere accuracy, because it is truthful. The Indian, as he has hitherto been, is on the point of passing away. Mr. Curtis knows their medicine men and sorcerers, their chiefs and warriors, their young men and maidens. He has not only seen their vigorous outward existence, but has caught glimpses, such as few white men ever catch, into that strange spiritual and mental life of theirs, from whose innermost recesses all white men are forever barred. Mr. Curtis, in publishing this book, is rendering a real and great service. And so on. Curtis sets out on his mission with a kind of wagon train filled with native costumes and props ready to be worn by anyone, anywhere. A tribal head who normally wears a suit and shirt he might ask to strip shirtless, wear a headdress. He gets the photo and moves on, tribe after tribe, often coming back in a few years for more. Curtis puts out the first volume in 1907, and thinks the series can be finished in five years. But by the time J.P. Morgan dies, not on the Titanic, but after another boat voyage to Egypt in 1913, the series isn't even half done. Over the next 20 years, he loses his marriage, his money, and his health. At some point, shooting on the Pacific coast, his hip is crushed by a baleen whale. Meanwhile, there's B.A. Haldane working away in Alaska, like other Native photographers all across the country. Jenny Ross Cobb in Oklahoma, the great-granddaughter of a Cherokee chief, started taking photos in 1896, documenting her family and family home and her classmates at the Cherokee Female Seminary, walking down the boardwalk outside the school in fashionable dress and hats. Horace Pula in Oklahoma spends 50 years photographing Native culture. One picture from 1930 
shows his father wearing a headdress with ermine and otter furs. Another is of himself and a buddy, both from the Kiowa Nation, at the Air Force Base where they're stationed during World War II. Pula has become an aerial reconnaissance photographer, and so he stages a photo of himself and his friend in feathered war headdresses, joking around inside a B-17 flying fortress. While all of these native photographers are working, Curtis is still dragging his cart around the country, looking for something that doesn't exist. Finally, in 1927, Curtis decides it's time to be done, and he heads for one last shoot back to where it all began, Alaska. His hip, injured by the whale, is really bothering him. He's brought his daughter to help, and they spend days searching the northwest coast for the right kind of pictures, the right kind of people. Quote, it's been a hell of a time, he writes. He doesn't go back to Matlakatla. Instead, on Nunavik Island, about 30 miles off the coast, covered in permafrost, home even now to more muskoxen than people, he finally finds what he's looking for. For the first time in 30 years' work with the natives, he writes, I have found a place where no missionary has worked. When he gets back home, almost immediately, he's arrested. Curtis, allegedly, has failed to pay alimony. And at his trial, he breaks down, begging for mercy over his absentee lifestyle. It was my job, he says. The only thing, the only thing I could do that was worth doing. The last volume of the set, called The North American Indian, finally comes out in 1930. By then, completely broke, he sold the project. Glass plate negatives, prints, printing plates, all of it, to J.P. Morgan's son, who sells it all five years later to a bookstore in Boston, where it sits for decades in the basement. Eventually, of course, the prints become both ubiquitous and extremely valuable, and some Native writers and curators will treasure them as images of ancestors, beautiful and proud, even if the intent was misguided. Love the photograph, if not the photographer. Think about their intentions, says Eric Jolly, the former director of the Science Museum of Minnesota, who grew up speaking Cherokee. Quote, when I look into the eyes of the women photographed by Edward S. Curtis, writes Louis Erdrich, there is an exchange, an intensity of regard, It is to me as though I am looking at the women through a window, as though they are really there in the print and in the paper, looking back at me. Well, B.A. Haldane's work also becomes lost, and then found, when a man from Metlakatla finds 162 glass plate negatives in the dump on Annette Island in 2003. Slowly now, more people are seeing it. There will never be as much from B.A. as there is from Curtis, right? But there are others working to alter the balance, change the template. In 2012, Matika Wilbur from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribe 
sells everything in her Seattle apartment. She piles her clothes and cameras into an RV she calls Big Girl, and she starts driving around the country, racking up more than 600,000 miles so far, trying to visit and photograph all 562 Native American territories in the United States. Some people call her the modern-day Curtis. And quote, each time I hear that, she writes, I want to throw up. Her work, she says, aims to humanize the, quote, vanishing race. This year, her first volume came out, featuring 400 different tribal nations. Almost certainly, there will be more. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, with generous support from Ameriprise Financial. Check them out at Ameriprise.com. Check us out at artsmia.org. And if you're in or around the Twin Cities, check out In Our Hands, Native Photography from 1890 to now, now on view at the museum, including photographs by B.A. Haldane, Jenny Ross Cobb, Horace Pula, and Matika Wilbur, all of whom you may remember from this episode, I hope, because it literally just ended. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review us, and subscribe wherever you get your pods, so you never miss an episode. I'm Tim Gehring. See you in a month, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>